um, a nice familiar feeling of things getting back to normal. <laughs> Those long pauses. It does kind of, um, yeah, just creep up on you. It is good. It's like a beautiful thing to kind of see, as it were, new things happening. And um, I'm very grateful for it. Very, very grateful for it. And I believe um, it's bringing a whole new lease of life to what we do here at Ecclesia. And it is much needed. Couldn't help thinking of those words um, in that song today and how fitting it is for what we're going to be dealing with. Um, two particular lines. God of my present and God of my future. What a beautiful thing to meditate on. If you are still one of those people who could be here and are at home, I want to remind you of, I don't know if you saw Hamilton. Um, I haven't got the money to go and watch that, but there's a song where he says, I want to be in the room where it happens. And it's like, it's one of those songs that makes you go like, wow, I wish I actually could be in the theater watching Hamilton. And that's what it's like. For those of you who are still there, it's like, I mean, when I'm not, when I'm not here and I've got to be at work, I, I, I watch on YouTube now, and obviously it's not the same. It's like watching a bootleg movie. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. The dynamics of just, the, just hearing the music, um, being in the room where it happens is amazing. So um, I'm just reminded of that, of the beauty of being in the room where the people of God are meeting. And you can think of all the occasions throughout even Scripture where you could say, you know, one of my, one of my particular favorites to focus on is that road to Emmaus. I mean, you know, if there was ever a time I wanted to be in a place, you know, I would love to be there. And again, whenever the saints meet, do not neglect the assembling of ourselves together because you can miss a great moment like that. I want to begin by reading. I have a lot to go through. And I'm going to, I'm going to put this out there right now that I will not be able to do Daniel 7 justice in an hour, which is my aim, if not less. But that does not stop, doesn't stop you unpacking that in your own time and kind of getting some little trails and threads and saying, oh, let me go and follow that and go and um, investigate that a bit more. Because many commentators believe that the, this is the pivotal chapter in the book. Everything revolves around this chapter. So let me start by reading it, and then I will pray, and then we'll see what the Lord will say. So reading from the ESV, it says this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different for one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. 
Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird and its back on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up another from, a, from the other horn, another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the root. And behold, this, horns, this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to, the, to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and, he, and was presented, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Forever, forever and ever. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. 
and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones. He shall... and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my colour changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And who are we there, Lord God, but to be willing clay desiring to be molded and conformed to your will. Lord, you have given a great promise that where we are gathered there, Lord Father, your spirit will be there. And Lord, we need your spirit to teach us in these times. Lord, your word is true. And Lord, everything that would rise against this, to challenge this, Lord, that would be the mouth of a liar. So, Lord, as we sit before your word, we sit, Lord, as those in need of genuine food, spiritual food, Lord God. And, Lord, as we do so, we praise you because you are one who desires to feed your people. And plentifully, Lord. So, Lord, as we stand under your word, as we stand in your presence, Lord, as we stand in the midst of the saints, Lord, bring this word alive to us. As terrifying as it might be, as difficult as circumstances might become, even in our own present time, give encouragement. Give us hope there, Lord Father. So that, Lord, at the very least, we'll be aware that you are in the boat with us in the storm. So, Lord, we, don't know what, we do not know what lies ahead but we do know what is written in your word. And we know that, Lord God, no matter come, whatever kingdom, whatever empire will come, it is you there, Lord God, that will have the final say. So, Lord, as we contemplate these things and draw strength from it there, Lord, we're thankful that your servants have written such an account as this for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by way of introduction with this. Babe Ruth, in the fifth innings of the third game of the World Series against the Chicago Cubs in 1932, has been a point of controversy. To this very day, the controversy centers around whether he pointed to the place 
he would hit the ball in order to score a home run, or whether he was just indicating to the opposing team the number of strikes he had had. For those who are big New York Yankees fans, it is beyond question what Babe Ruth did in that game. It has gone down as part of his legendary status. At a point when the game is in doubt, it can be immensely reassuring to have the hero of your side come out and call the play that will bring you victory. It is this idea that I believe will help us grasp the heart of God's message in Daniel. Daniel, in a very similar way, has become embroiled in controversy as to whether God has really called the play way before it happened. Or is it just a retrospective optimism used to make Yahweh, or even Daniel, a legend? Is it really in God's ability to call out his play way ahead of time? Well, let's the prophets speak about this. Isaiah 46, 8 to 10 says this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind and you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Or my purpose. As far as scripture is concerned, it is very much within God's ability to do exactly what we see happening in the book of Daniel. So before we dump into the text, let's kind of deal with some of the issues <coughs> that I've been aware of since even when I was a, 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 a very new Christian. And there is, tends to be two interpretive histories of the book of Daniel. Two modes of understanding the book of Daniel. The first is to see it as a history book in the guise of being prophetic. Those that hold to this view believe that the book dates back to the second century at the time of the Maccabees. This then means that the events of the then present, the Jewish conflict with the Greeks, with Antiochus IV, are reflected back to the times of Daniel. So it's people writing a history, trying to encourage the Jews at the time, and saying, we can win the battle, because God has prophesied it. But it's not really a prophecy. It's just optimism. Along with this view, the four kingdoms prefigured in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and in Daniel's vision are Babylon, Media, Persia, and then Greece. This, perspe this perspective, however, makes the book's direct connection to Daniel somewhat questionable. A book written in the second century couldn't be written somebody, by somebody living in the 6th century. 
It's what people call a pseudepigrapher. Written by somebody else, in somebody else, written by somebody as a famous person way back. But really, that person hasn't written it. Is this really what Daniel's about? The alternative view is to see this as a book that was originally penned by Daniel in the 6th century BC. And rather than being a historical retrospective, that means going back, it is in fact a prophetical piece of literature. Other than also obviously a first-hand account of things that were happening in Babylon at the time and Persia. Under this premise, the four beasts or kingdoms tend to be viewed as the following. Babylon, Media and Persia combined as one empire, Greece and then Rome. This perspective tends to sit better with the book overall as it takes the book at face value. As a first-hand history of Babylon and Media Persia empire, which also looks prophetically into the future of the world. I think trying to rob the book of its prophetical message does seem to come across as being cynical. Cynical of God being able to do what Scripture says he can do, such as call the shots from a long way back. I also wonder if this view has become more favourable since the Enlightenment. When human sovereignty was a given for the basis of human progress, albeit at the cost of a diminished God. God knowing what we will do before we will do it is supposed to humble us and make us reverence him. I also believe that such a view seeks to undermine the strong connection between God and the writer of Scripture. If God cannot really speak into the writer things he could never truly know, then what is the inspiration of Scripture? What we're left with is basically writers pretty much writing out of their own experiences and nothing more. It's that strong connection of God speaking into the minds of men, which is, I think, the tradition we need to hold on to. Much like in my introduction to this sermon, it would appear that to be controversial to have any person calling the play before it happens, because it contravenes human freedom and dignity. I recall a time when the, the legendary coach, Pat Riley, once said in an after-game interview that no other team in the NBA will win a championship as long as Michael Jordan was still playing. Of course, players were free to try. But resistance will be futile. So when God is on our team, we have a good reason to be optimistic. Just to remind you, 
that this is the last Aramaic chapter that began in chapter 2. So the book switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. It suggests that the Aramaic parts were, were written for these particular chapters, from chapters 2 to 7, because to some extent, the scope is worldwide. And so it was good to write it in a, in a language that most of the other nations in the Middle East spoke so that they could read it too. Here is what God is declaring right from now. Let it go out into the whole world. The chapters that come with like chapter 1 and then chapters 8 to 12 are written in Hebrew because to some extent they deal with particular Jewish issues. And so didn't find it necessary to write that. So that's the suggestion that goes out there. I find it plausible, but it's just to kind of explain those things which are going on which we can't read. We read, the, we read it in English and so we need to understand that there is a language change. So let me also kind of do a quick overview of where we are. We've already heard it, that there is a symmetry to, the, to these, these chapters. And it seems that chapters 2 and 7 are said to be symmetrical as they both deal with the history of empires before the coming of the kingdom. So we remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Chapter 7, Daniel's vision. Chapters 3 and 6 are also symmetrical as they both deal with the persecution of those who remain faithful to the kingdom of God during the times of empire. In other words, so we remember that, you know, worship the statue or go be thrown into the fire, you know, follow my decree or, you know, and don't pray to any other God or I will throw you to the lions. So there's a, there's a symmetry with those particular, those two, those particular chapters. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with the humbling of kings that are arrogant. One bows the knee and is restored, whilst the other does not and loses the kingdom. It must be noted that the position of Daniel must not be overlooked. Nebuchadnezzar kept Daniel close to him as an advisor, whereas Belshazzar did not and had to have someone else introduce him to him. I believe that the influence of God-fearing people in a nation makes a difference in its success or failure. But we'll speak more on that later. So let me now break down the beast. The first eight verses. <clears throat> the first beast is pretty straightforward. Because we already, we've already got the interpretive pattern from out of Daniel's mouth from back in chapter 2. So the first beast is typically Babylon. The illustration of it losing its wings is usually seen as the humbling of its king as is told in chapter 4 of Daniel. So he loses his wings. He loses that, that ability to do great things that, you know, the whole idea of having wings is about power and scope and being able to do pretty much anything in your power. And he loses that. And then he becomes, and this is very important for the beast, he's turned from a beast into a man. 
Those who humble themselves in the presence of God are given human status. In other words, there is a play here between being merely a creature, but when you embrace the creator, that God part in us gets exalted. And we become true humans. True humans who can stand on our own two feet because we've humbled ourselves before God. And I think that's important. The second beast is somewhat easy as well to identify, but obviously, because of these two competing views, we need to obviously take our time and understand, well, we understand it is the Medes or media. But as with the view that I hold, it would be better identified as being joined with Persia. The bear being raised up on one side certainly alludes to the fact that one member of the alliance is stronger than the other. Also interested in history, that the figure of Darius is also, is, is also quite mysterious, and it can be helpful that by making the connection to Darius of what's going on with this one beast representing two nations. Because some believe, though there is very little evidence, that Darius and Cyrus may very well be the same person. What we do know is that Darius was born from a Median mother, a princess, and a Persian dad. And some believe that he changes his name to Cyrus a few years after and joins the two kingdoms together. This, I think, gives great, if indeed the hypothesis is true, great reasons as to why the bear represents two empires. The third beast, I believe, represents Greece. The leopard-like beast certainly seems to typify Greece as Alexander, Alexander's army was well known for its swiftness in conquering huge amounts of territory in a relatively short space of time. Even the four wings and the four heads seem to correspond to the four generals that succeeded Alexander, after his ultimate untimely death, and then was divided between the four generals. So even that seems to match quite well with the whole idea of the leopard. The final beast then appears to be Rome, and to some extent, the successive nations that are spawned from it. Those who are familiar with the end-time teachings will note how influential Rome has been to other, other would-be empires which have tried to revive its success. To note a few, Charlemagne tried to revive the Roman Empire in the 9th century. The Ottoman Empire was also born out of the old Eastern Roman Empire. The European Union was born from the Treaty of Rome in 1957. 
What is worth noting is that the inferior nature of these more recent iterations were made in comparison to the original empire, which seems to correlate well to the whole idea of the partially strong and part the clay and, and, and iron feet. Some of these kingdoms were reasonably powerful, some of them were not. Which I think most of us may be, you know, may be familiar with. However, I think it's best understood as being a representation of the spirit of Antichrist. Evident in so many leaders throughout history, which will finally lead to the last Antichrist. So looking back to chapter 2, along with the other parallel chapters, it's possible that there are other connections being made between the two. So why two visions of the same thing? Why one dream and one vision? What's going on there? Some people believe that it's like for reinforcement, you know, like within the, you know, Jesus is very notably said, he says things like, verily, verily, I say unto you. The whole idea of repeating something twice is for effect of like saying, I'm being sincere here. That could possibly be going on. <laughs> but let's move on. For example, Daniel's friends are rescued from the fires of Babylon in chapter 3. And then Daniel is saved from the lions and the Medes and the Persians in chapter 6, as we've already discussed. The end result is that the believer is reassured that God can save regardless of who is in charge. So when you see those connections, you say, well, what's going on? Why twice? Well, maybe God is saying that, well, he can deliver me from whoever is in charge. As simple as that. A reminder of this is 2 Peter 2.9, isn't it? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God knows how to save us. This is exactly what their confession was, is that my God can save me. And even if he doesn't, I still won't bow the knee. But it's that knowing that God could is what assures us. The next contrast is between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in chapter 4 and 5. And both kings were seen as arrogant. And they're certainly displayed as arrogant. But once they are humbled, one king is restored as he acknowledges God and the other. And the other is destroyed as he tries to carry on as though nothing has happened. Which we heard a few weeks ago, isn't it? Just carried on. The party. A warning to bow the knee before the sun returns. Judgment is coming. Do something before it happens. And this is exactly what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar as well, isn't he? He says, repent, so that this thing might be avoided. I believe that chapter 2 and chapter 7 present us with a contrasting views of empires, one from the outside and the other one from within. So on one level, you see the glory of its achievements in military and economics and art the architecture of civilization, you see, and that's what I think the statue represents. The exterior of empire, and as you walk around to, you know, go and visit Rome, go and visit Greece, go to the Middle East and see some of these ruins, we get a picture of the splendor of what these kingdoms might have looked like in its heyday. We look at the, the things they have left behind, the artifacts and, the, you, know, the, you know, all kinds of things, and 
the records of its history, military history and economic success, and they can be impressive. Very impressive, even. But whereas in chapter 7, you see the heart of those world empires and their beastly nature lurking underneath. For those familiar with ancient history, and even modern history, to be, to be honest with you, it's not hard to see how much evil there was lurking beneath the success of empires. Moving on to chapters 9, verses 9 to 12. The Father reigns. The picture of the Heavenly Father, or God, or Yahweh, as they would have known him in Daniel's time. For those familiar with the latter prophets and Revelation, this is a typical representation of the Father. The white clothing signifies purity. The hair like pure wool represents wisdom. It's not an identifying mark. I remember, you know, most people will come and say, look, he's got hair like wool, you know. He's a black man, you know, all that kind of stuff. These are all symbolic things. It's, it's not like, oh, you know, God really does have wool hair. It's the picture of purity. It's the picture of the Ancient of Days, it's a, it's a symbol representing wisdom. When you, again, the Proverbs tells you this, doesn't it? That the, 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 the old hair, the white-haired man brings wisdom. He's lived his life. The white-haired woman too. Amen. <laughs> it's a picture of wisdom. He knows what he's doing. The fire also signifies judgment. It means something's about to happen. And the, and the fire is, is seen as spewing out of the throne. It's going to do something. It's on its way. The father pronounces judgment on the beast, which then brings the horn's arrogance to an end, much like how Belshazzar's arrogance and boasting was brought to an end after the city was taken the very night he was warned. Just as the Persians take over the governance of Babylon, so God's kingdom will succeed the final empire and lead to a time much like what we see in the millennial kingdom. So those of us, again, familiar with Revelations, this picture of a kingdom, once all those kingdoms, it seems that for a time, all the other kingdoms continue on whilst the kingdom that was particularly a problem is subdued and the believers are now called in and are now this, the, you can say basically they're the ultimate kingdom. And all the other kingdoms are subordinate to it until, as Revelation says, the devil is come after a thousand years and rouses them up and declares war in that kingdom again. It's depicted here in Revelation 20, and I want to just read that quickly for you. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who, to whom authority and Authority to judge was committed, and that would be the, those who God has particularly selected. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, or on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, 
and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The next sequence is 13 and 14, isn't it? And that's the picture of the Son, the Son of Man. These verses are frequently quoted within the New Testament and identified as pointing to Jesus as the Christ who comes from God to rule creation. The title of the Son of Man identifies him with the created order, but the fact that he comes riding on a cloud means that he also comes from heaven. So there's a dual identity going on. He has this title of Son of Man, which is, well, he obviously belongs to creation, but he comes riding on a cloud, which is a picture of divinity, which is, again, for those of you all over the world, this whole idea of riding on clouds was a picture of divinity. Remember monkey? <laughs> there you go. It's a, it's a universal signal of divinity. Though it is clear that Daniel would not have been able to make this connection. So this is not about saying, well, Daniel knew that Jesus, you know, knew who Jesus was and all the rest of it. It's not, I'm not saying that. He is nonetheless seeing this picture of who Jesus is. Whether he understands that, obviously, is debatable. But he makes this connection, and obviously the New Testament writers also make that connection with Daniel. And Jesus himself also makes this connection with himself being the Son of Man riding on the clouds. And it's what actually signs his death warrant, isn't it? It's when he makes that statement. They finally say, we do, what, what need do we need? What, what need do we have any more, of any more evidence? The last section, 15 to 28, brings us to the interpretation. Now, we are always blessed when we have somebody that comes along and says, you know, here's the point of the book. And we have that here as well. We can certainly understand how seeing something like this will freak you out. And it does that exactly to Daniel. In verses 16 and 18, the vision is unpacked and given its simplest interpretation, which we have already gone through, which was, who are the beasts? But what Daniel really wants to know is the details of the fourth beast and the little horn. For those who, again, hold to that idea that the fourth beast is Greek, is Greece, um, then this is where their strongest argument is because, to some extent, they kind of see this as being fulfilled. You know, Antiochus was obviously that little horn that grows and he comes and he, you know, he, he stops the temple sacrifices. He puts an image up there and then obviously the Maccabees revolt and they fight against them. And, and to some extent, this tends to be their strongest argument as far as I'm aware. How, does, how do we overcome this, this tyrant? And this is where they draw their encouragement from. In this sense, the book does, does encourage us and appear to be speaking directly into the situation of the 3rd century or the 2nd century Jews. But yet there was no lasting peace, though. And again, if you look at that same section, as you look down to verse 27, and it talks about everlasting peace, doesn't it? As far as I'm aware, 
what the Maccabees accomplished didn't last more than three years and a bit. And it never led to any lasting sovereignty of of the Jews in their own nation. So as far as I'm concerned, you're still within a a situation where you still need a fulfillment of this particular prophecy. For this reason, I think it's safe to say that Antiochus did represent a type of Antichrist, but was not the final Antichrist, as depicted in the text, and is certainly not the Antichrist spoken of by Paul and John in their retrospective writings. So, obviously, Antiochus is not going to be raised from the dead, is he? It is worth reminding ourselves here that the Bible often has within its view a short and a long-term arc towards fulfillment. For this reason, we see ourselves as living within the extended reign of the fourth beast for over two centuries now. So that extended reign, that that long-term prophecy is, is being fulfilled. And so we see it being fulfilled time and time again And sometimes we've seen some terrible tyrants, right? It does make you shudder when you say, well, what would the final one be like? The angel first identifies that the fourth kingdom is unlike anything we've seen before. I would describe it as a prototype empire. This will now be the format that becomes a model for future empires. It's also worth noting here how Rome was governed as a republic, but with a Senate, and and with a Senate, and thus a form of democracy, but also had an emperor who had his own branch of power. It's interesting how this model of governance has come down through history in countries like France which is a republic, but it also had an emperor in Napoleon. Again, another type of antichrist. Germany had a similar structure with the Third Reich, isn't it? The communist country, you know, the communist countries also had their own dictator ruling alongside the Politburo, the seemingly democratic side of things. So whether you look to the West or to the East, you see a similar form of autocratic leader alongside some form of democratic body. But we all know where the real power is. In this sense, the horn is typical, typically a charismatic leader that is calling the shots for the nation. So the beast is just along for the ride. That's what's the picture here, isn't it? It's the horn that's really the boss here. And all the entities and all the powers of mechanisms of empires and nations and whatever are just going along. When you look through history, you see that's pretty much true, right? A little horn pushing so, million, so many million pe- millions of people into economic ruin or military defeat. the nature of the horn. Looking particularly at verse 25, 
it says this again, just to remind you. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hands and for a times and times and a half time. And it's quite interesting that this is actually quite true. One of the things I discovered last year was that, you know, it was Hitler who changed what we're going to experience next week with the clocks going back to try and create more time to get everybody up a little bit earlier, to use the daylight better, and then England and many other countries followed suit. Interesting little fact, that, isn't it? Just so that the war effort can basically get more momentum, get people up a little bit earlier, go, go to bed a little bit late, you know, a little bit earlier as well, all came from World War II. And it shall come as no surprise that a dictator find, will find any rival to the authority as a threat. The need to challenge even God will mean that they will go to great lengths to seize the hearts of their people. They also go to great, they also built, create great monuments to their greatness and threaten to kill anybody who does not acknowledge it. You know, one of the things you see, especially in those little newsreels, isn't it, is when you see um, old um, regimes conquered, you know, Libya and Iran, Iran, you see these statues being pulled down. These great monuments they build. They're still building statues to this day, right? What is also notable about tyrants is that they will mock true religion and seek to coerce the people to make him, make him or her, if it's ever possible, the focal point of providing all their needs. We've already seen through the book of Daniel how its leaders already fit this mold. Nations such as these are rightly seen as religious in nature. Even if it promotes itself as secular. There's a religious zeal that comes into the people that their leader does indeed become a form of God. So how do we apply this? Well, this raises the issue of culture, I think. But I also am aware that culture can be a nebulous term. I'm again not this believer that we can create a pure Christian culture in which we can just sit in and say, this is what it is, because everyone that has done so has created some kind of warped thing as well. But we need to be aware of it. And obviously the culture is, you know, as you know, one, one um, dictionary, short dictionary, description of it, the quality in a person or society that arises from a concern for what is regarded as excellent in arts, letters, manners, scholarly pursuits, etc., etc. So what must be noted, firstly, is that under the project of Israel with, with Moses and Joshua, they were called to be a holy people. Removing the Canaanites was supposed to aid in establishing the culture of holiness. 
And we see that all throughout Deuteronomy, right? You have to remove these guys. If you allow them to remain around, around you, they will influence you and corrupt you. The Israelites were to limit the influence of the cultures around them by whatever means are necessary. We must not assume that within the New Testament, we do not have a similar mandate, even though we are not called to annihilate our enemies. Note the prayer of Jesus in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for this sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We must note, even as Jesus says it, we are in a world that has no place for truth. We have to be very careful about how we live within the culture around us. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a great case in point. As he exhorts his readers not to map the values of the culture onto the gospel, but rather they are to let the gospel dictate truth to the culture and even subvert it where necessary. When it comes to the potential dangers in the culture, even food can be an issue. Even something as simple and innocent as food. And we witness this in 1 Corinthians 8 to, 9, 8 to 10, where he talks about food offered to idols. And we also meet that in Daniel 1, don't we? I can't eat the king's food. It would, it would defeat my witness. You shouldn't really go to the temple and eat that because it will defeat your witness. There is no safe cultural artifacts as attacks against the truth can come from anywhere. This is not to say that we... We, 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 we abandon ourselves from that. That's not what Jesus prays, right? He says, keep them in the world, but keep them from the evil in the world. There's that nuance there that we have to be careful of. So it's not like, oh, don't go eat your rice and peas. Don't question whether it's halal or not. He says, for the most part, just eat and be, you know, be content. But sometimes people are making statements as they're giving you things, and you have to be kind of aware and sensitive to that. And say, for the, for the, great, for the kingdom of God, I'm, I, maybe I shouldn't. There are, and when I say there is no safe cultural, cultural artifacts, I mean, it comes even down to children's shows, right? The news, clothes, hairstyles, all these things can defeat our witness. In fact, hair does actually come up again in Paul's own arguments, doesn't it? We must accept that we live also in an age of empire. 
Our desires to rage against the system of empire may be right, as we recognize that they operate unjustly, but that does not mean we have the option to opt out of it. It is only when Christ comes we will have the only viable alternative to the system of empire. It must be noted that God even uses the system of empire in order to spread the gospel. Acts 17, 26-27 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That means that there's times where people's boundaries have extended, right? And have become, and people have taken more land than they originally were living on. But it says God has allowed this to happen. <clears throat> Why? That they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet it is actually not far from each one of us. The spread of empire has also meant the spread of the gospel. I don't think that is a coincidence that as the church grows in a nation, its power and influence also grows. And to be frank, Look at China and South Korea as a case in point. I believe that we will see similarities, in the similarities to the past growth of the Western Empire, the Western world. As the church is growing rapidly in China, its influence seems to be growing too. And who knows why the Lord is exalting that nation regardless of its leaders. I believe that God can assign prosperity to a nation to which he wants the gospel to flourish. No doubt this is why we are encouraged to pray for the nations we are in in order to, have, to live peaceful lives so that the gospel may spread. For this reason, I believe that as, Christ, as, as Christianity has declined in the West, we also are witnessing the decline of those Western nations. The sad truth is that even when the hostile nations are sitting at our doorstep, we still refuse to believe this is our end. As Belshazzar is sitting there and drinking it up with the Persians out the, out the door, even as the Israelites were sitting there in their houses believing that God was going to save them as the Babylonians surround them, sometimes we just don't realize our time is up. What was true of Israel and Judah and for Babylon? When God prospers, this was true obviously for Israel and for Babylon, and when God prospers a nation, we are not to believe that God does, not, does so because the nation is righteous in itself. It may even do much evil like the Babylonians and the Persians do. It is grace alone why anyone prospers. I must also take a little time to address Romans 13. I wish I had time to, to delve into this whole idea of 
Romans 13 being the chapter of submitting to the authorities. We must not take the instructions in this text as a reason to give carte blanche obedience. We are also under the instruction to render to Caesar his due and to God his due. It is not a good idea to be a poor Christian at the expense of being a good citizen. Let me just say that again. It is not a good idea to be a poor, Christ, a poor Christian at the expense of being a good citizen. Hopefully we can do both well. What we need to do, Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Are you actively developing a biblical worldview? Sincerely. Am I, do you find yourself thinking more and more align, aligning yourself with Scripture and how Scripture thinks about the world and about our lives? Or are you happy just to borrow, whenever you go for a difficult times, the elders' worldview? Can I just get your wisdom on this situation? which is perfectly reasonable to do. But if you're never testing your own, if you're never relying on your own, we can be a bit like those five foolish virgins, right? We may find ourselves asking for oil in a time where people have moved on. One of the big takeaways in this chapter and the book overall is the view of the reader being in exile in a foreign land. But their, but their hope is not to be dashed because they live with the expectation of the kingdom to come. I'm in a foreign land, but the kingdom will come. When I think about this vision, coming at this particular point in Israel, Israel's history, I'm stirred to consider the facts as they stand. I think the first thing we, you know, why has this changed? Why does this type of literature pop up? Why does Daniel happen at this particular time? Well, I think the first thing is hope. Hope. Israel will never be a sovereign nation again. It is debatable whether modern Israel can be considered Israel as, as such, but is really sovereign as it relies heavily on the U.S. It is therefore necessary that they hold on to the covenant regardless of what pressures are around them. And tempted them to compromise. It's interesting also that what Israel seems to have failed to do in the promised land God is able to accomplish, especially as we look at this particular small section of Israelites, as in Daniel and his friends, in Babylon, he's able to make them faithful, even though everything around them is tempting them to do something very different. 
And so even through this example, we see hope because it says you can live a faithful life even when the odds are against you, even when you don't have the comforts of your own home. Faithfulness is possible. Sometimes what we can't do in, in easy circumstances, we may actually be able to accomplish them in pressured ones. The next thing is witness. We must note that by taking the Israelites out of God, of the land that God has provided, is an opportunity for his people to be a light to the nations. This doesn't mean that they, they will shine forth their own brilliance, but rather the glory of God. Daniel and his friends are not the heroes. It is God who is the hero. He is the one that shines forth from their lives. This means that every opportunity the pagans have to distort the supernatural happenings in their lives gets thwarted as Daniel and his friends, as a witness to the Almighty God, brings the power and revelation to bear in their lives. Everything that, that, that Belshazzar and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar are going through, there's a temptation to twist it into some form of their own God speaking to them. But Daniel says, no! This is the true God bearing down on your life. So witness is important. Hence why we are where we are, so that we can be light to the world. Lastly is judgment. Judgment is coming. Because judgment is coming to the world, it is only right that God, in his grace, should make it known that safety is only found in the triune God. The Father has called you. The Son has saved you, has died for you, and has resurrected for you. Now be filled with his Spirit. God has let us know that the countdown has begun. And we're living in the extended grace of the last beast. Who knows when it will end? Finally, for our reflection, let's reread from, I think, probably the most fitting chapter of commentary, even on this particular chapter, and that's Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion and my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage 
and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.